Welcome to the public morality. Moore versus Harper is arguably nothing short than the most important case for American democracy in several decades. At question will be the controversial independent state legislature theory that holds a state legislature's plans for new congressional districts are not overridable by a state Supreme Court's interpretation of its own constitution, including any provisions limiting partisan gerrymandering. In short, the Supreme Court will tell us whether the independent state legislature theory is merely a theory or a doctrine of constitutional law. To help sort the implications of Moore v. Harper, we're honored to have legal professor Vikram Amar. Professor Amar is dean at the College of Law at the University of Illinois. Professor Vikram Amar, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by having you offer a distillation of Moore v. Harper and the independent state legislature theory. Sure. Uh, so Moore versus Harper is a case arising from North Carolina um, out of uh, the redistricting of congressional districts um, after the uh, every 10-year decennial census. So the Constitution of the United States in both Article One and Article Two, refers to the legislatures of the states as having a role in administering federal elections. So, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, with regard to congressional elections, in Article One, the Constitution says that the times, places, and manner of holding congressional elections shall be prescribed by the legislature of each state subject to um, override by Congress if it doesn't like the districting that the, uh, the states are doing. So in North Carolina, the Republican state legislature drew congressional district lines that predictably favored the Republican Party. The North Carolina Supreme Court invalidated those district lines under the North Carolina Constitution not the US Constitution, but the North Carolina Constitution on the ground that the North Carolina Constitution forbids excessively partisan gerrymandering. So they, they basically invalidated the districts drawn by the state legislature and said, you're not complying with the state constitution here. The state legislature has now gone to the US Supreme Court invoking this theory known as the independent state legislature theory under which the state legislature when it is regulating federal elections both congressional and presumably also presidential elections is free from having to comply with the state constitutions and because they the republicans in north carolina argue when the US Constitution refers to the quote legislatures of the states, that means the elected legislature and only the elected legislature, no involvement by the courts or the state constitution or the, uh, the state people. It's a, it's a conferral of power directly on a particular entity or body. And that power is plenary and cannot be limited by anything else in state law. So this theory, if embraced, would essentially mean that elected state legislatures aren't bound by what the people of the state want, what the courts of the state say the state constitution means, um, indeed, even what governors of the state might try to do by way of vetoing um, uh, districting laws or other federal election regulation. So it's a, it's a very um, broad and disruptive theory that I and a lot of other scholars argue has no basis in the text or history of the Constitution, much less in any of the cases the U.S. Supreme Court has already decided uh, on this issue. Um, the Supreme Court has actually already rejected this argument in four prior cases, um, and, and, and we'll see um, how much those matter um, when, when this case is argued in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, take, taking your point about the North Carolina State Court, here's, what the, the North, here's a direct quote from the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, quote, in every 
single one of the 52 elections decided within a six-point margin, the enacted plans give Republicans an outright majority in the state's congressional delegation, state houses, and the state Senate. This is true when Democrats win statewide by clear margins. Would it be saying, in effect, that the spirit of gerrymandered districts would be consistent with the ethos of the Constitution? So let me back up and make a few points. Nobody in this case, I think, is really denying, um, at this point at least, that the districts drawn by the North Carolina legislature are quite partisan uh, gerrymandered. No one kind of is contesting that at this point. The question is really whether partisan gerrymandering um, can be uh, uh, reined in. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a very important case called Rucho versus Common Cause uh, three years ago, held that the federal constitution does not have any role to play in reining in partisan gerrymandering. And the federal courts uh, don't have any role to play in invalidating partisan gerrymandering. So it was in the wake of Rucho that states like North Carolina turned to the state constitution and the state Supreme Courts as an avenue to get a handle on this problem of partisan gerrymandering. And indeed, the U.S. Supreme Court in Rucho pointed in that direction because when it said that the federal courts have no role to play here, it went out of its way to say the state courts and the state constitutions have a role to play here. So it was pursuant to Rucho that um, uh, people challenged the North Carolina legislature's partisan districts in, in this case, and they won in the state Supreme Court. So the issue is whether state constitutions can regulate partisan gerrymandering, or if not, um, uh, then it's going to just be up to um, uh, the state legislatures themselves and presumably the voters um, who, who could um, uh, remove from office uh, state legislators who engage in partisan gerrymandering. The problem with that, of course, is the same gerrymandering that the, those legislatures engage in makes it very hard for the voters to ever remove them. Is it, does it also raise a question? A constitutional so, so, so let me back up. I'm sorry. Let me back up. So, so, so just to be clear. So the, the Supreme Court, if it were to embrace this ISL, independent state legislature theory, would not be condoning um, the, uh, the wisdom or the uh, 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 morality of partisan gerrymandering, they would simply say, it would be saying that constitutions and state courts, like the federal constitution and the federal courts, have no role to play here in dealing with this problem. And, and does that all raise the question about who in fact runs U.S. elections and who sets U.S. election law? No question, uh, no, no doubt that question is presented. So again, Article One and Article Two of the Constitution certainly enlist states to help administer federal elections. So for example, most importantly, in the context of presidential elections under Article Two of the Constitution, those elections are administered on a state-by-state -state basis, right? We don't have a federal agency that administers presidential elections. That's done in each state separately. Every state has its own rules for, for voting, and every state um, uh, picks its own electors separately. So states play an important role, no question. This case asks, however, not whether states are important actors here, but whether state legislatures are the only institutions within each state that matter. So um, the, the real question is whether Article 1 and Article 2, when it refers to legislatures, whether it intentionally means to single out st state legislatures and cut state courts and state governors and state people um, uh, acting by direct democracy, initiatives, referenda, whether the use of the word legislature means to cut all those other institutions of state government out of the loop, or instead, as I argue, the reference to legislature is simply a shorthand for a reference to a state legislative process that includes governors and includes courts and includes direct democracy. Legislature doesn't mean a particular entity 
it means a process of lawmaking subject to gubernatorial veto and judicial review under the state constitution by the state courts and so forth and so on. So the, the, the fork in the road here that the court has to decide, and it's already decided it in three other cases, but presumably some people want to revisit it, is whether the use of the word legislature means an entity or it means a process. And let me just add one other important kind of uh, analogy that drives the, the point home. The U.S. Constitution refers to Congress a bunch of times, like 60 some times. Okay? It says Congress may do this. Congress has the power to do that. Nobody thinks that when the Constitution refers to Congress and Congress having the power to do something, that that means that Congress gets to do it without presidential presentment and veto. So the fact that um, the word Congress almost always in the Constitution means a legislative process that includes Congress and the president, that is um, an analogy for the use of the word legislature of the states in Articles 1 and 2, which similarly um, uh, should be understood to refer not to an entity, but rather to a legislative process. You know, I'm I'm reminded of... uh... Of um, I think it was Joe, uh, Gerald Ford, who was in the Congress at the time, when asked about impeachment, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, and Ford reportedly said, well, high crimes and misdemeanors is what Congress says it means. And so that sort of amorphous response sounds like what you're alluding to here in this notion of independent um, state legislature theory, that it is what proponents say it is and really doesn't have a lot of constitutional heft behind it. I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a fair analogy. So the, the, the petitioners in this pending Moore versus Harper case, that is the Republicans in North Carolina, they, their argument really boils down to the following. Legislature means an elected legislative body and nothing else. The problem with that is that a legislature of a state does not exist except by virtue of the state constitution and the state people who create it. So the idea that a legislature can be, uh, it can be empowered by the federal constitution to violate the state constitution that created it and the wishes of the state people who empowered it, it's just so anti-historical and anti-textual. It's, it's what we, my brother and I, who write, uh, who've written an article on this, we call it faux textualism because it wrenches the word legislature out of its historical context. Just as the word Congress in the Constitution doesn't necessarily mean the House and the Senate alone, but instead in context means a process of lawmaking that includes presenting bills to the president for his or her veto, um, uh, which has to be overridden if, if there is a veto. Um, so to here, legislature of the states means legislature as defined and as limited by the state constitution that created it. You know, in, in, in reading this, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but I'm wondering the impact of the 2013 decision, Shelby County v. Holder, that gutted pre-clearance stipulations in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, does it play a role, at least in the momentum behind the independent state legislature theory? Only in the broadest of senses, um, uh, in that um, the Shelby illustrates, I think, that the court has not been uh, as good as it wants to be, I hope, in paying attention to the historical backdrop. So I think the big uh, um, critique of of Shelby County is that it ignored um, the real uh, understanding of the 14th and 15th amendments against the history of the reconstruction era. And the the problem with the the, uh, independent state legislature theory here is the same, namely it ignores the, the history of the founding era and what people thought legislatures um, uh, entailed and meant. Uh, And it wrenches a term out of context in the same way that that Shelby County uh, kind of 
that ruling uh, was was a contextual and a historical as well. But as a as a logical and doctrinal matter, um, that's a separate kind of constitutional uh, um, set of questions than the one presented here. No 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 less important. Shelby County was a huge case. Don't get me wrong. But this is this presents a different set of, of doctrines under the Constitution. Many have raised the possibility that independent state legislature theory would allow uh, the legislature to send its own slate of electors to the electoral college that may vote different from the outcome of a state election. Is that a valid concern? It is a valid concern, um, but I want to qualify it. So even a broad embrace of the independent state legislature theory would not permit a state legislature to appoint a slate of electors that uh, is different than the voters selected after the election takes place. Um, And the reason for that is because the Constitution clearly allows Congress to designate um, the date on which electors shall be selected. Um, And Congress has done that um, uh, uh, by designating uh, National Election Day. That is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. That's the date on which electors shall be selected. So if a state going into that election says the electors shall be picked by the people of the state, and then the people of the state do pick electors, there's nothing that the legislature can do after that fact. But if a legislature, let's say, let's say the, uh, the uh, 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 Michigan legislature, the Wisconsin legislature were to say today, by the way, in 2024, um, we, the elected legislature, will pick the electors to the Electoral College. Um, we'll hold uh, um, a, a popularity preference poll. Um, some people might call that a national election that day. We'll hold one in the state and we'll kind of take a look to see what the people say. But that night, we will decide for ourselves who we want the slate of electors to be. Um, and we're not bound by what the people might, uh, might say in, in that, that election uh, 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 action. Um, that would be perfectly consistent with the Constitution under ISL. So as long as a state legislature announces before Election Day that it's going to do the picking itself and and maybe be informed but not be bound by what the voters want, then they can do that under ISL. Let me give you another example. Um, In most every state, as we saw in 2020, after the presidential election, if there was a real debate over who the the uh, people did select who won the election, who got more votes. Those disputes were resolved in almost always state courts. But what if today a state legislature said to itself, and by the way, it doesn't even have to have the governor involved if it really means, if legislature really means legislature. So when I say if a state legislature says X, they don't even have to pass a law Um, under the strict theory of ISL, because it's just the state legislature without the governor deciding what they want. So if a state legislature today were to say the following, if there is a dispute after the election about who got more votes, rather than the state courts, we, the elected legislature, shall be the tribunal to decide who got more votes. We'll be the arbiter of that. That, too, would be completely permissible under ISL, and there's nothing anyone could do about it. And here is the kicker. Both of these hypotheticals, namely the state legislature saying ex ante up front, it's going to be the one to pick the electors, or the state legislature saying up front, it's going to be the one to resolve election disputes. Its decisions to do that would have to be allowed even if the state constitution explicitly said the voters shall pick the electors or the courts shall resolve disputes about who got more votes. The point of ISL is it doesn't matter what the people of the state try to say in their state constitution enforced by state courts, because none of that matters if all the power is vested in the elected legislature only. And I'm listening. I'm listening to 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 you describe IS, ISL, and it it feels very similar to me. Uh, to I mean, in theory, not not specifically, but in theory, it feels very similar to me to the segregationist arguments of interposition nullification. I wonder how you saw that. 
Well, I haven't given a lot of thought uh, to that. I'd want to think about it more. I do think that um, there is a commonality here. The, um, the secessionists and the nullification uh, proponents like John C. Calhoun, they failed to understand the basic values of federalism in the United States. That federalism is about empowering states to do certain things, but ultimately giving the federal government um, uh, power over other things. So the reason that, that secession and nullification uh, were, were uh, kind of uh, bogus theories is because that's not a power that was reserved to the states. And once they joined the Constitution and the Union, they didn't have a unilateral right to opt out. That wasn't the vision of federalism. So, too, at that high level of generality, the big mistake ISL people make relates to federalism. The central meaning of federalism is state get a lot of discretion about how they want to structure internal governmental decision making. If a state wants to give power to its governor, it can. If a state wants to give power to its state courts, it can. There's nothing in the federal constitution that reaches in and says, oh, state X, you have to empower only your legislature and you cannot empower your governor. You cannot empower your people via initiatives and referenda. You cannot empower your state courts. Um, that the federal constitution <clears throat> limits um, the flexibility that you have to structure government affairs the way you want, that's entirely antithetical to the 10th Amendment and federalism properly understood, which, which really stands for the idea that states get to do what they want as long as they're not violating any federal norm. And now secession did violate a federal norm, nullification did violate a federal norm, but empowering state courts to enforce state constitutions against state legislatures in the context of federal elections, that doesn't violate any federal norm. And so that should be a decision left up to each state. It's ironic that the ISL folks are really taking a position that is anti-states rights because it puts a straitjacket on states rather than empowering them to do what they choose to do. No one would um, take me for a legal scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But as I read what I believe is the crux of the independent state legislature theory, it feels to me that it's something that depends more on the days uh, of the Articles of Confederation, more so than a constitution that, whose preamble begins as we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Your thoughts on that, sir? Well, that's kind of an interesting and ironic um, uh, point in question you make, uh, Byron, because interestingly enough, even under the Articles of Confederation, where states were given a lot of power, no question, more so than they enjoy today, even under that, the state legislature was not free to disregard the state constitution. So one of the key pieces of evidence against ISL is the following. The same words, namely that the legislature of each state shall prescribe um, the picking of delegates to the, the federal Congress, the words of the Articles of Confederation carried over to Article I. Article I uses the, nearly the same words as the Articles of Confederation. And yet in the days of the Articles of Confederation, state constitutions directly told state legislatures how they had to pick the delegates to the federal Congress. And nobody complained about that. No one said, wait a minute, the Articles of Confederation give power to the state legislature and the state constitutions can't interfere with that. Um, and that's exhibit A for understanding the meaning of the words of Article One which built directly on the Articles of Confederation. So even in the days of the Articles, ISL would have been a, a bogus theory. Listening, listening to, to some of your responses, I'm, I'm, I'm struck also by the fact that in order for um, ISL to hold true, um, wouldn't it, as a, I'm asking you this as a, as a law professor, wouldn't it uh, be in contrast to reasonable person's definition of legislature? I think if you ask people on the street, do you think a legislature of a state continues to operate as a legislature when it violates the limits 
placed on it by the same state constitution that created it, I think they would say, no, once it violates its, its own uh, boundaries, it's no longer acting as a, as a legislature. That was the whole point of judicial review in the first place, in Marbury versus Madison. When, when Congress passes laws that violate the Constitution, it's no longer operating as a valid Congress. So, too, when state legislatures are violating state constitutions, they're not really operating as a state legislature and they're not entitled to any authority under Article I or Article II. Um, uh, uh, state legislature is itself, as I said at the outset, uh, uh, defined by a state constitution. I mean, if, if, if Byron, if you say, you are the state legislature of the state of Virginia unto yourself. We say that's, that's ridiculous because under the state constitution in Virginia, you're not the legislature. Just because you say you're the legislature doesn't make it so. Here, if the state legislature is doing things that violate the constitution that created it, it's no longer a state legislature. Let, let, let's assume momentarily that the court sides with the North Carolina legislature. Uh, does it, would it then going forward mean that the constitution, that when we see the word legislature in the constitution, that it, it subjectively has a different meaning? Well, there's, it's not clear, you know, what an opinion, uh, uh, ruling in favor of the North Carolina legislature, the petitioner here in the case, would actually mean it would it would depend on how the Supreme Court wrote the opinion, but it would um, potentially have consequences for use of the word legislature in other parts of the Constitution. Most importantly, our presidential election. Because this Moore versus Harper case involves Article One of the Constitution and the use of the word legislature in Article One, which governs congressional elections. Presidential elections. Uh, are governed by Article Two, which also uses the word legislature. But um, as my brother and I argue in in our article and in a brief that we will file, if anything, the language of Article Two is even more clear um, uh, that legislatures of the states are not independent. It's a somewhat technical argument, but if you look at Article Two of the Constitution, its first words of relevance here are each state. It says each state shall appoint electors to the electoral college in a manner that the legislature thereof may direct. So the fact of the matter is in Article 2, the subject, grammatically speaking, of the sentence is each state. And all it says there is the legislature may um, direct the manner of appointment of, of, of electors to the electoral college. It doesn't say that they shall or they must. So if you're going to play this faux literalism uh, um, uh, kind of textualism game, and I think that it, you, we should, you should look at the words in historical context, that's what originalism really is all about. But if you're not going to be a principled originalist and you're just going to be kind of a jejun textualist, then um, uh, um, uh, uh, at the very least, um, you have to do the same thing for Article 2 as you do for Article 1, and that cuts the other way. And you, you, you referenced your piece that you wrote uh, recently uh, with your brother, Law uh, Professor Kilimar, um, for Supreme Court Review. And you write, Article One structures a democratic small d legislature in which the first mentioned house consists of members chosen directly by voters, a clear break with the pre-existing Congress under the Articles of Confederation. How does proponents of the independent state legislature theory reconcile this point? Well, again, they don't really try to because their argument isn't grounded so much on theory or history. They don't really have a theory for why the state legislature should be the be all end all and that state governors and state courts and state peoples acting through uh, direct democracy initiatives or referenda uh, shouldn't matter. They don't have a theory for why um, anyone would ever single out the elected legislature and give it all the power within a state and cut everyone else out of the loop. They don't have a theory for, for uh, how that fit historically um, uh, into any of the, the, um, uh, the ideas of the day. So you ask the question, um, you know, well, how does um, uh, ISL kind of align with the idea that, that the legislature should be accountable to the people um, who elect them? 
and, and again, I can't answer that because they, that's not the petition, the game that petitioners are playing. Their brief, even though it's 50 pages long, really is just various um, uh, different ways of saying, well, legislature means legislature. So that means the legislature. Um, I, it's really no more complicated than that or sophisticated than that. Again, we're, we're uh, projecting momentarily. If, if the court were to side with the state legislature, how might this ruling, in your view, impact other states that have adopted, say, ranked choice voting? Uh, well, again, depends on how they adopted the ranked choice voting. If uh, a state used direct democracy, the initiative to codify, enact a ranked cho choice voting system, then that would not be uh, effective because only the state legislature gets to pass regulations for ranked choice voting in federal elections. Let's be clear. Um, we have, we've been talking a lot, but we should make one. As broad as ISL is, it, it's limited to federal elections. Nobody argues that um, uh, the state constitutions cannot constrain the state legislatures um, uh, with regard to regulation of state elections. So, but if we're talking about ranked choice voting in federal elections, unless it were adopted by the elected legislature, um, if it instead were created by the people of the state through direct democracy, it would not be valid. Now, let me just pause here because mention of state elections uh, is important. How silly would it be if we read the constitution as saying that generally speaking, state elections and federal elections should be governed by different sets of rules? That means for example, if the state, if the people of a state adopt a constitutional provision in the state that says all ballots two days after election, provided they are postmarked by election date, shall be counted. Okay, so so the state uh, constitution says that explicitly, and then the state legislature says for federal elections, the ballots have to be received in the precinct by election day not two days later. That means those same ballots where the voters voted for governor and senator and president, that the governor vote would have to count if it arrived a day after election day, but not for senator or for president. It just would, it would wreak havoc in any sensible national uh, election administration. That's a whole nother um, uh, practical critique of the, um, of the unworkability of ISL. Um, but it's one I want to make sure that people um, uh, uh, know about. And, and following up on your last answer, talk, talk about, and you sort of touched on it already, but I'd like to expand if you could, the dangers to America's democratic Republican form of government if the Supreme Court holds for the North Carolina legislature that it has primacy and does not adhere to state courts and ultimately the people that elected them. Well, again, Precisely because state legislatures today are so gerrymandered already, you've got a lot of states that are purple or blue, where the electorate may be pretty evenly balanced 50-50, but where the state legislature is solidly red or less commonly solidly blue. Uh, and, and the reason why Republicans have been more successful in partisan gerrymandering than the Democrats is not because Democrats are any more virtuous. They try to try to maximize their advantages when they can. It's just the fact that Democrats tend to live in densely populated um, uh, uh, ultra blue areas in cities means that Democrats are already kind of packed together in a way that makes them easier to uh, to uh, uh, segregate for purposes of gerrymandering. Republicans aren't quite as concentrated um, uh, as Democrats are. So it's easier for Republicans to uh, win the game of partisan gerrymandering than it is for Democrats, especially at the state legislature level. But the reality is we have a lot of state legislatures that are you know, reliably red, even if the state may lean blue. So I'm thinking about states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia. If ISL were embraced, that means that the majority of voters in those states would not be able to really have their voice heard in the presidential election because the state legislature could rig things 
so as to essentially disregard um, what a majority of voters for president would prefer. I mean, Moore versus Harper is important for congressional elections, don't get me wrong. But the real um, uh, uh, big uh, uh, um, uh, enchilada here is the presidential election in 2024 and beyond. So even if the Supreme Court rules in favor of ISL here, I'm working hard to try to make sure that that result shouldn't carry over to Article 2 and presidential elections, because to answer your question, Byron, that is where the most profound anti-democratic implications of ISL um, uh, 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 exist. Um, for, for our listeners, say more specific to the Article 2 concerns that you have, if you don't mind. Sure. So under Article 2, each state gets to decide for itself how to pick electors to the Electoral College. Every state in the country has decided to pick electors by means of a popular election. Uh, indeed, most voters don't even know that they're not voting for the president, but they're not. They're actually voting for a group of electors from their state who will represent that state, assuming that um, uh, that group of electors um, is the most popular one. So in, uh, in Illinois, where I live right now, um, in most elections, the electors who are pledged to support the Democratic candidate for president get the most votes. And therefore, that's the slate of electors from Illinois that gets sent um, uh, to the so-called Electoral College. Under ISL, a state legislature, if it wants to, can, no, can remove the power of selecting electors from the people themselves and, and, and withhold that power for the elected legislature alone. So even if a state constitution like Colorado's says the electors to the electoral college shall be selected by the voters of this state, if the legislature of Colorado wanted to, they could pass a resolution that says in the next presidential election, we, the ele elected legislature, rather than the voters will decide who uh, 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 the electors from this state shall be. And that means that the, the, the voters of Colorado might not have their wishes respected in terms of, of who represents that state in the Electoral College. So if enough states did this, indeed, given how close presidential elections are these days, even if a few states did this, it could have profound consequences for who wins the, uh, the, the uh, presidential race. We obviously don't have a true national election for president where the person who gets the most votes nationwide wins. We have this thing called the Electoral College and we're kind of stuck with it. But at least within the Electoral College framework, the candidate who gets the most votes in each state gets to represent that state. Um, but under ISL, that's no longer necessarily true. So, so your concern is that, that um, uh, prior to the 21st century, I believe that it was what, four times that the individual who's received less votes won the presidency. Um, it's happened twice in the 21st century. I mean, you say that this could be an entrenched way that we would elect a president where you could conceivably receive a minority amount of votes from the people, but still win the presidency through this ISL procedure. Certainly ISL increases the uh, problem that the national vote loser wins. That's certainly true. But it's even worse than that, because, again, so let, let's take let's take Georgia, for example. OK, let's take Georgia, Wisconsin and Michigan last time, last time around. OK, so certainly Biden got more votes than Trump. But if the state legislature in those three states had said we rather than the people of the states of Georgia and Wisconsin and, and, and Michigan um, will pick the electors. And the legislatures of those three states picked Trump rather than Biden, even though the voters of each of those three states preferred Biden. That wouldn't change the national vote margin very, very much, because, again, Biden won those states, but by a small amount. So I'm not really talking about national vote winner. What I'm talking about is within each state, the rules of the game would be totally different. Um, so you could have a president elected not just with fewer voters nationwide, but by carrying fewer states than they carry today. It's just a basic betrayal 
of the, the fundament. It's bad enough that votes don't count equally around the country, right? That's a function of the electoral college, that someone who wins the national popular vote can lose the electoral college. That's bad enough. But the idea that within each state, someone could lose the state even if they had more votes in that state just because of a gerrymandered legislature in that state, that's another layer of affront or offense to democracy. Is there a rationale with uh, sticking with the Georgia state legislature for why this is needed? Because most laws, if you put a stop sign, we've, we've had a number of accidents at this intersection, so we need a stop sign here to make it more safe. Is there any type of rationale other than we want to do this that the North Carolina uh, legislature has put forward to, to uh, proceed? It's a great question and the answer is yes, but ultimately um, it doesn't go anywhere. So the answer that they would give is the state courts are making up stuff. The state courts are interpreting the state constitution in too free form, ambitious, uh, untethered away. It's very similar to the critique of Roe versus Wade, that the U.S. Supreme Court just kind of made up this right to abortion. So too, the North Carolina legislature would say here, the North Carolina Supreme Court made up this idea that um, uh, that we can't um, uh, take politics into account when we draw district lines. Maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing to, to be partisan, but it's certainly not anything that's written down clearly in the state constitution. And so when the North Carolina Supreme Court invalidated the district lines that we drew, it was basically them just making it up. That's the, the theory. And I understand there's, there's, there's something to that, but ultimately that's not the business of the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal courts. The meaning of state law is up to state courts. And one person's made up is another person's sophisticated interpretation. So it's, if, if people in North Carolina don't like what the North Carolina courts are doing, and if, if they think the North Carolina courts are being too aggressive and, and creative in interpreting the state constitution, there's a remedy for that. The people of North Carolina can then uh, remove people from the courts and put different people on the courts. But none of that has anything to do with the U.S. Supreme Court, just as federalism means that states get to structure their internal government um, uh, allocation of, of authority however they want, so too federalism means that state courts get to decide what state constitutions mean and federal courts get to decide what federal constitutions mean and they have to each stay in, in their own lanes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pull um, language from the Declaration of Independence, uh, where it says a long trend of abuses and usurpations. And might those uh, like yourself skeptical of the independent state legislative theory offer similar in that it is a theory substantiated with in my view, the possible assistance of other rulings that began with the piece that you recently, you and your brother recently wrote for Supreme Court Review, Bush v. Gore. So we've had a number of rulings that sort of have led us to this next point. Would that, would that be fair? I think that is fair. I think Bush versus Gore was uh, the start of a lot of this mischief. But I would excuse or at least um, uh, uh, explain Bush versus Gore a little bit more on uh, the ground that it was decided in just a few weeks and the justices did not have enough time to really think clearly and deeply about um, uh, the history behind um, the constitution and, uh, and what the best way to understand text uh, in historical context is. So I can forgive what three justices in Bush versus Gore um, said about this theory much more than I could understand um, a, a ruling today by the Supreme Court in favor of the North Carolina legislature, because the justices now have the benefit of a lot of really um, uh, careful historical work. My brother and my uh, and my piece, a piece by uh, articles by other scholars as well. So that's actually, Byron, what makes me cautiously optimistic that the Supreme Court will not end up embracing ISL, because just last year. In, in Dobbs, the, the abortion case, and Bruin, the Second Amendment case, the justices committed themselves to originalism. That is, 
uh, applying the meaning of the Constitution as it was understood when the words were enacted. And if you are any kind of principled originalist, as our scholarship is showing, you have to reject ISL. And I'm hoping that that even justices who might be inclined to uh, want to rule in favor of the North Carolina legislature will be disciplined by their commitment to originalism and do the right thing. Now, maybe I'm naive, but I'm still hopeful at this point. Well, okay, here's my moment to challenge your naivety. We'll find out right now. Um, I think what concerns a lot of people is you've had at least four of the justices, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that have shown an inclination to support um, independent state theory. Yeah. Um, taking your words, when you look back at um, D.C. versus Heller um, mm -hmm. and you read Justice um, Scalia's opinion, that was a real reach for originalism in that he put the words around to pull out an originalist intent, um, which seems to be contradictory to originalism. That is the concern that a lot of people have. How might you respond to that? Well, I would respond by denying the premise, for one thing. Um, uh, a lot of the most sophisticated originalists think Heller was rightly decided. I'm not an expert in the Second Amendment, so I'm not going to weigh in other than to say um, uh, uh, that, that the Second Amendment is complicated, and especially when one looks at the history of the Second Amendment around Reconstruction as opposed to 1787, the case for uh, a rigid, uh, individual gun ownership rights um, uh, is, is, is not privileged by any means. Um, uh, so so I, I think uh, the, the Heller case for originalism and the ISL case for originalism are completely apples and oranges that whatever you think about Heller, the case for originalism in ISL is much, 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 much weaker. Second, as you point out, there, there have been a number of justices in the past few years who have indicated uh, some uh, um, uh, uh, interest in and, uh, and um, uh, support for ISL, but none of them did it when the issue was fully briefed. So here I come back to, again, the, this concept of the shadow docket. Justices say a lot of things um, off the cuff um, when they have not had a chance to really delve into the arguments and the briefs. And um, I just think it would be really hard to write an ISL opinion in favor of the North Carolina legislature that really remotely confronts all of this mountain of stuff on the other side that, that people like me have been trying to present. Historically. It seems in many respects, uh, America is a, is a nation divided uh, pre and post 14th Amendment. My question to you, sir, uh, would the 14th Amendment and the doctrine of incorporation be limited if the court holds for the North Carolina legislature? I do not think that ISL, broad and unfounded as it is, um, has implications for the incorporation of the Bill of Rights against state and local governments. It's ISL at its core is about the uh, completely facile reading of a single word um, out of historical context, uh, but limited to uh, the regulation of congressional and presidential elections. So obviously, you know, outcomes, results of presidential and, and congressional elections have tremendous implications for the meaning of federal constitutional rights at the state and local government level um, at some larger scale, but it doesn't have anything to do with the incorporation doctrine under the 14th Amendment. Okay. And, and finally, if this passes, um, some by, have by passes, you, by, by passes, no, you mean no. if the court embraces it? Uh, well, yeah, I'm gonna say if the court, let me just say it a different way. If the, if the court sides with the North Carolina legislature, it holds for them. Would this, in your opinion, be the most significant ruling in American democracy since Marbury versus Madison? I heard someone offer that the other day, and I wonder how you saw that. I don't want to be hyperbolic um, uh, for a few reasons. First of all, if the, if the, if the decision wrongheadedly embraces um, uh, the petitioner's um, uh, claims here, um, maybe the court would limit it to congressional elections and not apply it to presidential elections for the reasons I mentioned that the text of article two 
is even more anti-ISL than the text of Article 1. And remember, in the congressional election setting, no matter what state legislatures and states do, Congress can always regulate federal districting itself if it wants to. Now, Congress is obviously uh, gerrymandered too. So uh, in the modern day, I don't hold out a lot of hope, but at least there's the congressional backdrop there. So I don't want to exaggerate. I think this is a very important case, especially if ISL is embraced um, hook, line, and sinker in a way that applies to Article 2. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to say it's you know the biggest case of all time. Um, I think the 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 uh, uh, um, the malapportionment cases of the 1960s, uh, Baker versus Carr, Reynolds versus Sims, Westbury versus Sanders, the so-called one-person, one-vote cases. I think those are super important, and um, uh, they would remain super important even if ISL is uh, embraced. Of course, partisan gerrymandering itself kind of puts pressure on the meaning of one person, one vote, because it's kind of a way around counting everyone's vote equally. It's a different kind of gerrymandering. The gerrymandering that was at issue in the, the, uh, the 1950s and 60s was not partisan gerrymandering. It was, uh, it was more geographical gerrymandering, where cities were given less weight than rural areas. Um, uh, uh, but those cases were tremendously important as well. So um, I don't want to exaggerate uh, uh, Moore versus Harper, but boy, it's a significant case. Professor Vikram Amar, sir, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the public rally. We've been honored um, to have you to have you on the broadcast. Thank you, sir. It's been my pleasure, and uh, anytime I can help you, please don't hesitate to ask. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.